Sorry, I know we're not supposed to talk about dogs. So now I think I'm going to buy you guys a drink. (laughs) (laughs) But if you have to compare the Hoover Hound to our fine feline friends, you know, there's a, yes, for pound for pound, dogs are going to eat a heck of a lot more chocolate than a cow would. Sorry for saying Sorry Media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hi, this is Dr. Susan Little. And Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, and that was really fast, Dr. Susan. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I did it. You did it. You did it. Yeah, I was surprised. I thought that would be at least a lag of like three, four seconds before she would jump in, which is the normal uh, case. But uh, this time yes. she did really well. This is Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. This is the Per Podcast. We are so excited today uh, in, in, in Kansas. It's kind of dreary Dutch weather, oh. but we're sitting inside. It's nice and warm. And we have a fantastic guest, Dr. Susan. Yes, we do. Um, yes, we do. And, um, uh, and we'll, we'll let her introduce herself in a second, but, um, I just, uh, discovered that she's in Minneapolis, which is where my husband is from and where I visited many times, of course. So yeah, so that's kind of a, you know, you find connections with people all kinds of ways, don't you? And that's in- indeed true. And, uh, and the, one of the reasons that we wanted to invite her was one first she's a lovely person to talk to and 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 has a vast knowledge base about a topic that we discussed not that long ago of which we told our uh, faithful listeners that we didn't know so much about so if <laughs> we needed to get an expert on and so i'm so happy that uh, that uh, dr anna brutlack is on with us so yes. anna introduce yourself Yes, hello. I'm so happy to be here. I'm Dr. Anna Brutlug. I am a board certified veterinary toxicologist and I'm the director of veterinary services at Pet Poison Helpline. We're a 24-7 animal poison control center. We are based out of Minneapolis, as Dr. Little just mentioned, but we actually serve all of the U.S., Canada, as well as do some work abroad in Australia, New Zealand, and the U.K. as well. Cool. Ah, Canada. Then I have a really good question, starting question for you. What is the most common Canadian toxin that you get calls about? <laughs> well, kind of a I would have to consult my data to <laughs> say database. for sure. But I bet you anything that it is actually chocolate. Chocolate. It's not maple syrup. The word, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Little yeah. Canadian chocolate. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. And they have really good Canadian chocolate because I remember yeah. that uh, Dr. Susan brought me a box of this special oh, chocolate. Yes. Yes. I, I brought you. Yes. I was, I was about to say we don't have good Canadian chocolate. And then I remembered. So, <laughs> <laughs> so one, one of the great success stories of, uh, Syrian refugees is um, a family that Canada welcomed and helped settle in small town Nova Scotia. And they are chocolatiers by trade. So they started up their chocolate business and they actually, Yola, just opened a new store in Halifax within the last week or so. So they've been just an amazing success story. And I, and I tend to buy their chocolate. It's called uh, Peace by Chocolate is the name of their company. So I 
peace, P-E-A-C-E, peace by chocolate. So I tend to give it to people as gifts. Isn't that a nice story? Ooh, that makes yeah. me hungry. I know. <laughs> yes, okay, yes, it, it makes chocolate. us all hungry for chocolate. But uh, but uh, yeah, so chocolate is obviously a a, a very common toxin. Uh, and 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 because we talk about cats, do cats eat chocolate often? They do. You know, I think we think of cats as being picky, and they are, but. When you work in this field, you see the ones who aren't picky yeah. <laughs> in, in the toxicology area. So I wouldn't say it's often, certainly, yeah. but we do get, well, we get a fair number of calls about cats getting into chocolate or it's some sort of chocolate baked good. It's a muffin or it's bread. And I have one who is absolutely guilty of that. He would eat anything. Poor thing, he ate styrofoam at one point. So, <laughs> you know, it didn't take much, but... <laughs> There are those, uh, you know, those oddballs out there. Does chocolate affect cats the same way it does dogs? Because I've been a, a bit a long time and, <laughs> excuse me, never seen it. It's not that common, Susan. I think probably what happens is, quite frankly, when they eat it, they just don't eat as much, relatively yeah. speaking, as a dog would. And... Sorry, I know we're not supposed to talk about dogs, so now I think I'm going to buy you guys a drink. <laughs> but if you have to compare the Hoover Hound to our fine feline friends, you know, there's, uh, yes, for pound for pound, dogs are going to eat a heck of a lot more chocolate than a right. cat would. But right. I think cats are much smaller, so they don't eat, have to eat as much, I guess, right. to have the same effect. Right. Yes, and, but you still and, could, and oh, go ahead. And, and then is it the same, because I always, you know, when I think about th toxicology, I think about, uh, you know, degradation and then things go to the liver and to the kidney and, you know, they're changing and then it changes into something else. And that is really toxic. And the other ones is not. Is that the same in cats and dogs then? The Yola, principle I think of the toxicity? That's metabolism, Yola. I think that's called metabolism, that thing. <laughs> Oh, thank you very much. Hi, you're welcome. <laughs> I think that there are certainly metabolic differences, but yes, between the things that change and the things that don't, some things are exactly the same between cats and other species, and others are wildly different. Yeah. And you know, you two are the experts of this, of course, and know this better than anyone else. But for chocolate specifically, yes, we can absolutely see chocolate poisoning in cats, and it does look very similar to what it would look like in other species. You know, they their heart rate goes up, their blood pressure goes up, they might have vomiting and diarrhea, and be very anxious and have some CNS stimulation, but albeit, like I said, it's hmm. pretty rare. Yeah. So they would, they would look like a, a cat. It's, and it makes sense. That's been given just too much, a bit too much of a bronchodilator, right? Because if we yes. use like aminophilin or something in that family, <clears throat> I, I've, not that we do so much these days, but, you know, I've certainly seen lots of cats kind of be jittery and feeling the effects of uh, those drugs. So yeah, they would look very similar. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And, and, and can you tell us a little bit about uh, where you work? I mean, there's a lot of, I, I went there, so I kind of know, but yeah. uh, our, our wonderful uh, audience doesn't know. Uh, so you're located in Minneapolis. And so how many people work there? How many calls do you get, for instance? Oh. And, 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 and a little bit of the, the background, how you got there. Sure. So Pet Poison Helpline is, as I mentioned, it's a 24-7 animal poison control center. So we, and we're, like, we're 
in Minneapolis, and that's where our headquarters is. But we actually have a lot of veterinarians and veterinary technicians who work for us even from their home in other states around the country. So we hire out of about half the states. And the reason I got started in this odd job is as a vet student at the University of Minnesota, I accepted a summer position there. So we always hire a crop of vet students every summer. And I thought, well, this sounded really interesting. And so long story short, you know, 15, 16 years later, here I am. But I started as a student that introduced me to toxicology and I found it fascinating. And it's something that, especially when you are working at a poison control center, you never know what you're going to get when you pick up the phone. And mm. so it's a pet owner calling to say, you know, my cat got into X or it's a veterinarian calling to say, wow, I have a cat with these clinical signs and we really don't know what's going on. It's otherwise it's young and it's healthy. And could this be something toxin related? And so I love that. I like emergency medicine. I like things that are fast paced. You can probably tell because I speak really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's what started it. Uh, when I finished vet school, I was in private practice in the Minneapolis area for a few years, but I stayed on at Pet Poison Helpline part-time. And then I, after I really had been in practice for a while, I was still really intrigued by toxicology. There was a full-time position that was open. I said, all right, I'm going to give it a year. If I really like it, then I'll pursue specialization. So do boards and things of that nature. And that's exactly what I did. I my background is after being there a year, I then decided to kind of split my time in sort of a self-designed residency type program. So I split my time between the Poison Center, uh, doing a master's in toxicology at the University of Minnesota, and then being at UC Davis in their veterinary diagnostic lab, which I can't speak highly enough of. It's a fantastic place. And so after that, and I sat for boards and I have been here ever since. And that's so my background. But Pet Poison Helpline, we we help all pets. So dogs included, I realize that's unfortunate, but uh, cats, so we definitely do talk to cat owners every day. And we employ about 30 veterinarians and over a uh, hundred veterinary technicians. Wow. So we've grown tremendously and, and COVID actually has made a big difference for us. Our case volume has just gone bananas so we are uh, you know more experiencing more than 50 percent of a growth compared to pre-covid times and that number just keeps going up and up and up so we've actually been actively hiring more vets and more vet techs and, and uh, do you think it's because people are at home and they see their mm. animal eat something <laughs> or there's more animals at home or why is it Oh, I think it's multifactorial. I think that it definitely is. People are at home more. And so they're seeing their pets get into something, whereas previously they wouldn't have been in, they would have been away at work. They wouldn't have noticed what had happened. And, but also I think that, you know, veterinary clinics right now and ERs are really hard to get into. And, you know, so all of our colleagues that are out in practice on the front lines, they're not surprised at all. They say, of course, we're seeing, you know, we can't even we can't see all the patients that we want to see in a day. Yeah. And so I think more people are calling Pet Poison Helpline first before going in or the e they call the ER and they say, look, you know, we're booked out for the next five hours. Call these guys and see if what your animal got into is going to cause a problem and yes. then come in if, if that's the case. 
It's a good way to triage though, actually, isn't it? Because it, it could save a, an owner and a pet an emergency visit. Yes, or, absolutely. Or, or let them know it need, it really is urgent, right? I think it's quite a good triage. Exactly. I think that's, that is exactly why people call us. They have, mm -hmm. they don't know. They want peace of mind. They want an expert to be able to tell them, is this going to be a problem or not? And, you know, if it is, then we also talk to the veterinarian and we help them through that case, recommending different testing, diagnostics. How long is this going to last? Help them understand what to expect in those and, types of cases. In, in a way, it's funny because so many people are struggling with telehealth and that sort of things. But this is your bread and butter, what you do every day. And it's really successful. And so people accept it for toxicology and, and for, you know, there is because these, 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 um, toxicology hotlines are everywhere. They're in human medicine, they're in veterinary medicine, they're very well established and everybody really appreciates them. But then we talk about telehealth in general, everybody's like, oh, I'm not going to do it. And we don't have GDPR and you know, you don't have a client relationship and blah, 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 blah. So, so why is that difference you think? Well, I think you're right in that there is precedent. So human public poison control centers started back in the mid middle of the 20th century, 1950s, I think, somewhere in that neighborhood. And, uh, and we actually started as a human public poison control center back in the 1980s. So I think there's long precedent and there's an understanding that these types of situations are emergencies and mm -hmm. that time is of the essence. It's if you, let's say you ingest something that's toxic, you don't have three hours to figure out if it's a problem necessarily. If we can figure out immediately that it's toxic, we can potentially induce vomiting in that patient or recommend immediate emergency care and get that patient treated as quickly as possible because that makes such a difference in the long run. So I think it's, again, many people and clinicians are really comfortable with that idea and they understand the importance of triage just like you mentioned, Susan. Yeah, and you probably also, the vets know that you will refer quickly, you know, mm -hmm. if you cannot deal with it with the owner self, that you're probably your advice is go to your veterinarian as soon as possible. Absolutely. Uh, to, to, to have them treated. So that per, that's probably a part of the, the reason that people accept that. And, you know, that people look at telehealth often as like, it's taking away business from me and which it's not, it's more mm -hmm. triage what mm -hmm. you're doing, but, uh, but uh, so you, you're a really good example for a lot of vets to, to look at and see how successful it can be and who and how it can drive business too. So, so I think that that's a really good point. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about. So, there's a lot of people working there, uh, and and it's veterinarians and technicians. And I cannot stress how important technicians are in this too. So, so what what do the technicians do at the at your poison control center? Oh, our technicians are, they are so important. Just like you said, just like our, when I was in practice, our technicians are the rock that we rely on. And the same thing is true in our poison control center. So our technicians, they all get additional toxicology training when they come to us, because we know that even a lot of veterinarians don't necessarily have a lot of in-depth toxicology training. So we do a lot of training with them. And then their primary role is to be the first line agent to speak to a pet owner who's calling in and they will talk to that pet owner. They'll get a history as to what happened, what that cat got into, uh, understanding of the cat signalment. So what breed of cat is this? How old are they? What do they weigh? 
what are their current medical complications, if any? Are they diabetic? Do they have chronic renal disease? And what medications are they on? Because all of those things can make an impact based on you know, what the cat was exposed to. And then they'll get a good understanding, of course, of, you know, again, did the cat eat something it shouldn't have? Was something applied to the cat? Did it walk through something spilled on the floor and it groomed its paws? And based on that information, then they will help to make a triage plan. So they will recommend that this is something really urgent. There is not something that can be done at home to help this patient. So you need to go into your veterinarian right now. Or on the flip side, if it's something subtoxic or if there is something that can easily be done at home, they will walk pet owners through that too. And then they always have access constantly to our veterinary staff. So if they have any questions, they'll consult with us, and um, which is very common. They just want to make sure that you know they haven't missed anything. They're dotting their I's and crossing their T's and advising that cat owner appropriately. So who, how, do, how do you provide the additional training? Um, it's not that you can't just like send them out for a course, right? So, <laughs> no, yeah. we do all of that in-house. So we have crafted a quite a, a little mini university when it comes to toxicology training. So every vet tech and veterinarian that comes in automatically gets about a two-month training program before they would ever be managing those cases live. And then they have an active mentoring program that happens. So they'll, when they first get on the phone, they'll actually be managed, they'll be listening to calls as part of their training to see how this works. And because you learn a lot by listening to your colleagues and then they'll be managing calls with another one of our veterinarians or veterinary technicians. So they have that active mentoring before they're released on their own. And so, yes, it is actually a very involved program that we've spent a lot of time designing and kind of continually refined because things are always changing. And, and both uh, consumers and veterinarians can call the line. Eh? So if I was a technician, I can call your line too? Yes, absolutely. So what we find is that most cat owners, pet owners will call their veterinarian first. And then, which makes sense. They trust their veterinarian. They know their vet. They know that person's an expert in animal health. And then their veterinarian will say, boy, I'm not quite sure. Call these folks. They're the experts. They're going to tell you if this is a problem or not. So that's usually how it goes. Certainly, we do get a lot of pet owners who just call us straight away. And that's increased with COVID. But like I mentioned, it's more common that they call their vet and their vet refers them to us. So now I'm a pet owner or a cat owner, and I've seen that the cats ate something. And I call you and I say, it ate something X. What do you, uh, you might know what X is, but what if you have no clue what that is, what they ate? What do you do? <laughs> if we have no clue, well, we have lots of resources at our disposal to try and figure it out. So if we can at least put it in some buckets, let's say, is it a plant? Is it a food? Is it a medication? Usually that's, that bucket is already, we've, we've ticked that box when they call. And so we have a really massive database of all of our cases that we've managed. So that in itself actually provides us a lot of guidance. Mm -hmm. We have you know, well over a million cases that we can pull data from and look at it. We also subscribe to some online toxicology databases. These are the same databases that are used in human poison control centers. So they provide a lot of great insight about what is in particular products, um, what are they, there's you know, 
if you have a medication, for example, especially a medication that we don't use in veterinary medicine, there's a lot of great toxicology data for all sorts of species that are housed there. And there's also lots of tox data from regulatory work that's happened in the past. Uh, so for example, for a company to get a let's say they want to approve a new pesticide. It's not mm -hmm. something, maybe it's to be used on lawns or you know, nothing that's used on animals. A lot of times there is mandated animal testing that has happened historically. So putting all of those pieces together can really help us. But you know, part of it too is just experience. There's a lot of stuff that's not written down anywhere, but mm -hmm. with 30 veterinarians who've been doing this a long time, collectively we also have a lot of internal personal experience with it wow oh, that's cool that's cool and I, I i think we need to jump into the cat specific because otherwise people start complaining about you don't talk about cats at all but uh so 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 let's uh, and 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 of course we we have another podcast coming uh, next week about the same topic but uh, uh what would you say is the number one so we talked about the number one toxic uh toxic entity in Canada. Is that the same in the US then? So North America, <laughs> you would say chocolate? I would say chocolate, hands down. But I would put the caveat here. If we are going to narrow it down to cats, mm -hmm. that changes things. Ooh. So if we want to look at the number one toxin just for our feline friends, then by and large, it is plants. Yeah. This yeah. rules above everything else. And I know you guys know specific plants that are very toxic to cats, mm -hmm. but when we look at just kind of everything in big general generalities, plants for cats are number one. Uh, human medications probably come in at number two, and this could be anything from you know, Tylenol, from a regular over-the-counter type of medication to prescription medications like for treating, we get, uh, fair number of calls about ADD medications, so stimulants. So it can be run the whole gamut, OTCs to supplements to prescription meds. For kitties, we also get a lot of calls about rodenticides. Oh. Uh, so yeah. this could be a cat you know, actually eating a mouse poison, or it's a cat who caught the mouse that was had eaten the mouse poison. And then the question is, well, now what's going to happen? They're easier to catch. They are. <laughs> easier to catch right <laughs> cats are no dummies they're gonna go for the things that are the one that doesn't run so fast totally <laughs> and it's human medications do you have a feel for if it's kind of accidental you know oops i dropped the pill the cat ran over and ate it um versus um you know somebody in my house you know gave this to the cat because they I don't know, thought it would help or whatever. So do you have a yes. feel for how that goes? It's more often with cats, this would be different if we're talking about the D word here, but with cats, it's more, uh, typically it will be a cat who ingests the pill on its own, Yeah. but we have a lot more people who actually would have given their cat something and now they're calling. With dogs, uh, you know, the classic example is the dog gets a hold of the pill bottle, chews it, eats the pills. Now cats being a little, having a little bit more self-respect, that's not as often, but there's certain medications that cats just seem really drawn to. I've heard that. Um, is Effexor one of them? Yes. So Effexor is yeah. a human antidepressant, anti-anxiety medication. And I do not know why, but man, cats seem to love it. And they will readily eat those pills. 
And so it's, it does happen, you know, fish oil capsules, that's another one, of course, not surprising. So vitamin D capsules that are vitamin D fish oil combination oh, yes. pills, those can sometimes be pretty problematic because cats will readily eat a lot of them. Yeah. But to your point, Susan, we do certainly get a lot of calls from people who have, you know, just they they were misinformed and they medicated their cat because their cat maybe it's older it's not feeling well so well hey I have this children's Motrin at home or this children's Tylenol I mean my goodness if it's safe enough for my baby it's clearly safe enough for my cat and as we all know that's just not the case but (laughs) and those are really those are kind of heartbreaking cases because the person feels terrible once they understand that you know what they did actually made the situation worse not better so yeah. I fed my cat this little pink pill. I have no idea what it is, but the cat liked it. And then you <laughs> have to figure out what the little pink pill is. Or do they yes. know, normally know what they feed them? Well, normally we can narrow it down. So I'm assuming if they fed the little pink pill, they might have the bottle that the little pink pill came out of. Or maybe they have a second little pink pill because the other you know, common scenario is you have a baggie full of pills, right? Maybe it's sitting in the bottom of your purse and the cat fishes out the baggie or what have you. So we can look at the pill, we can, there's uh, pill code sites that you can look up to look up what the imprint code is on the pill, the shape of it, is it scored, is it not, you know, is it round, is it triangular, is it oblong, is it a capsule, is it a tablet? So if it is completely a mystery pill, there are ways that we can try and figure out what it is too. You have to be a detective. Absolutely. That's exactly what toxicology is about. Even in some cases when they call and say, you know, I gave my cat X, there's still detective work that happens in some of those cases. But so it is the right. Sherlock Holmes of veterinary medicine that are the toxicologists at work right there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're at 25 minutes. So this has been no. amazing. It's going so fast. But we I have I've written a lot of topics that we're going to talk about next week. So this is the cliffhanger. Uh, we're going to talk about effexor, fish oil capsules, what happens when you give them to cats, rodenticides, I wrote down uh, plants. You know, we had a big uh, session about lilies and how dangerous they are for cats, but I'm interested if there's other plants that we should watch for, uh, you know, um, in, in, in the cat household. Uh, so lots of topics to talk about next week. Dr. Susan, do you want to finish us I off? will. But, but first I want to say that when we do when, when we do this the, the next episode, I know it's not so much a cat question as it is the lesser species. But remember when remember when we were um, uh, ineptly talking about toxicology, Yola, uh, a ep- couple of episodes ago, um, I had said that I knew the, the uh, toxic ingredient in um, like grapes and raisins was recently discovered, but for the life of me, I didn't know what it was. So yeah, so we'll just hold that thought and yes. we'll finally discover what that is. <laughs> I'm right, writing down grapes on my little list for yeah. sure. For me, uh, yeah. So thank you, Anna. This was amazing. Yeah, thank it's, you. Uh, the time flew by. It's it crazy how that goes. Uh, and Dr. Susan, do you want to do the end uh, titles? I, I, will, I will do the honors, yes. Thank you. So I will remind um, everybody to check out our website. It's perpodcast.net. You can see all of our great uh, episodes with our wonderful guest experts. You can listen to them the episodes directly on the website, uh, or you can also uh, 
you can uh, also find us at any podcast app. You can subscribe to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you like to get your podcasts. And check us out on social media across our platforms. We are at per podcast because, you know, we're very social people. Mm -hmm. And that's it for this week. Thank you, Anna, once again. You are wonderful. We'll see you next week. Oh, thank you so much. Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and August, Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs. And you can follow her on social media with the handle at CatVetSusan. Dr. Yurla Kirpenstein is a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GVETSX. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove struvite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page at per podcast. 